Last week, we talked about our biggest problem. And we said that that biggest problem is not global warming, it's not political unrest, it's not health concerns, uh, it's not economic issues, as real as some of those problems can be and are. Our greatest problem is not that. Our greatest problem, as we said last week, unequivocally, is sin. That is our biggest, biggest problem, and it's universal. Today, as we continue on, we're going to be talking about our greatest need in connection with our biggest problem. If we've identified a big problem, now the task is to, to find out what is the need there to solve that problem. And so uh, our greatest need is what we're going to be talking about today. Last week, we looked in Genesis, actually, to see where that problem started. And our biggest problem came from Adam and Eve, our first parents, when they sinned by giving in to temptation. And it ushered in what our biggest problem is universally. Uh, Every single one of us is born into the sin that they chose and committed. We're going to be back in Genesis today, uh, starting off as we, we look at what our greatest need is in connection with that biggest problem of sin. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 10 is where we're going to start off. I would encourage you to look at that with me. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. This is what the Word of God says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the tempter came and tempted Eve, who uh, was not alone. Adam was right there with her, and he should have been the one to drive the tempter away, and he should have been the one to take the reins of the situation, but instead he just sat by and let it happen. And so she succumbs to the temptation, so does Adam, That is what ushered in our biggest problem that we looked at last week. She saw that the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, desire to make one wise. We see right there a connection with the New Testament, with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Every aspect of sin, all of our sinful choices stem from these things. These are the sources from where our sin comes. We either lust with our eyes, we lust in the flesh, or we desire to build ourselves up and we have our own vain ambition, the pride of life. Everything comes from that. That's a trifecta of sin, the, the big bad three, if you will, of sin. And she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. This is not just a physical nakedness that they were aware of. Certainly that's, that's obvious and that was there, but they were already naked. Scripture tells us that in the previous verses. They were naked and they weren't ashamed in that nakedness. There was nothing of shame there. There was nothing to be shamed about. There was an innocence and a purity. And so this can't be just a, a physical nakedness that they were aware of. It just doesn't make sense that suddenly they realize, oh, wait, we're, we're naked now. No, they were pretty smart. They were smart before uh, they took of the fruit of the tree. They knew they were naked. 
This is something that goes beyond the physical. This was a sudden and a striking spiritual nakedness. We're going to see here at the end of this passage that something happened that naturally occurred, regularly occurred. The, the implication is that the Lord God Himself regularly came down, visited with Adam and Eve, walked with them, fellowshiped with them in all of His glory, and they had all of His glory surrounding them at all times. They would have been in the presence of God without the presence of sin. Think about that. In the presence of God, in all of His holiness, and all of His glory, without the presence of sin in their lives. Which meant there was no barrier between them and God. All of His glory surrounded them. All of His glory saturated them. Adam and Eve were in the, the complete glory of God, the complete holiness of God, holy themselves. No barrier between them and God. No sin until the point where they gave in to the temptation to sin. Prior to that, we have every reason to believe that what we see at the end of this text with God coming to walk with them and fellowship with them and, and interact with them regularly occurred. That this was a habit. This was a, a scheduled occurrence each and every day. Which means that they themselves had a covering of the glory of God. Think about uh, Moses when he would go up to the mountain and he was, he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and he received the law and he came back down and then every time after that he would meet with God face to face and the Word of God tells us in Exodus that the people uh, could not even stand to look at Moses because his face radiated so with the glory of God. He actually had to put a covering over his face because the glory of God was so bright that people couldn't stand to, to look at him or be around him. And that's with Moses still being a sinful man. Think about how it must have been for perfect Adam and Eve, completely saturated in the glory of God, day in, day out, moment by moment, 24-7. However long the time was between the time they were created and the time they fell, we don't know. We have no idea how long of a, of a time period we're talking about. But however long that was, they were constantly in the presence of God without any sin or, or any other barrier, no need to filter anything out, 100% just raw glory of God surrounding them. That means that their covering was that very glory. Now sin enters the picture, and it immediately snuffs out that light. It immediately takes away that divine glory that they were covered with. They're not covered with that anymore. Instantly now, they are covered with their sin, which keeps the glory of God from covering them. Remember, we, we looked at last week at Romans 3.23, where the Word of God there says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, missing the mark of His glory, His perfection. The standard of holiness and of glory we will constantly fall short of because of sin which started here. It all started here. 
So this realizing that they were naked, this is absolutely not just a physical thing. It means they realized they were spiritually naked. They were absent of the glory they had before. It goes on. And here's what they did in, in response to that. It was, it was a, a quick decision. It was a desperate act, and it's all they had. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, certainly this was a physical covering. They immediately would have felt shame that they did not feel before. When sin entered the picture, not only did they realize they were spiritually naked, but they, they looked at their physical nakedness, and they were vulnerable, and they were, they were open And there was shame now that entered the picture because that's what sin does. It takes something beautiful and it takes something good and it tarnishes it and it taints it and it introduces shame where before there would not be shame. And so they're trying to cover that as well. They're trying to replace what they lost spiritually and they're trying to solve their physical shame as well, both of which are the result of sin. Verse 8, and here's an example of what I feel happened all the time prior to this. This was a routine thing. This was not new. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's literally in the evening wind. What a picture that is. Think about that wonderful summer breeze You know that happens in the evening when the humidity goes down and there's just that gentle breeze and everything calms and quiets. Here's the Maker coming to commune with those He made. The sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife did something they had not done before, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. How tragic. How tragic. I think prior to this, this would have been their favorite time of the day. And they would hear the sound of the Lord God. Most likely, this was the person of Jesus Himself. He's the one who made Adam and Eve. We know from John that no man, no human has ever seen God the Father at any time. And yet, all the time throughout history, people saw God face to face. So I feel it's very, very probable that this was the person of the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the one whose hands actually formed Adam and Eve that would come and visit with them face to face, person to person. And before this, I mean, I I just see Adam and Eve being so excited every single time. The Lord is here. He's here. He's come. Do Do you hear him? Let's go. Let's go. And they rush to meet Him. And they rush to commune. Now, in one instant, everything has changed. They're absent of His glory. They're desperate to cover themselves with something, anything. Now, when they hear the sound of the Lord God, instead of running to Him, they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And certainly he knew, but what he's doing right here is he's, he's reaching out to man and he's giving man the chance to confess and to acknowledge the separation that's occurred. He's giving man the chance to, 
to acknowledge the responsibility that he has in creating this separation. He's, he's reaching man where man is. He's pursuing man even though man is no longer pursuing him. Isn't that just like God? Aren't you glad that God meets you where you're at? That He pursues you relentlessly? Even in the moments we're going the opposite direction from Him, that He doesn't stop pursuing you? Where are you? And He said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. You see the connection there? He was afraid because of what he was now missing. Fear came in because that, that presence that he had with God without anything affecting it, the glory of God that he knew, that comforting, all-filling glory of God, that was gone. And so now in his place, there's fear. I was afraid because I was naked. I'm vulnerable now. I'm empty. And therefore, I'm afraid. And I hid myself. Remember, that nakedness, that's physical and spiritual. Physical vulnerability, spiritual vulnerability. Lacking everything he needs. And his only response was to hide. What we see here is always what sin does and always what sin causes. What sin does is it isolates us. First, it isolates us from God. That's first and foremost. It isolates us from God, but it also isolates us from other people. It alienates us from God, and it alienates us from others. It causes shame and fear, and it empties us from any sort of confidence or hope or encouragement. That's always what sin does, and it's always what sin causes, and we see that here in vivid detail. And what we see Adam and Eve doing in response to their sin is what humanity always attempts to do in response to our sin. First, it's, it's trying to replace the righteousness that sin robs us of. We see that that's what they tried to do. They're absent now of, of that innocence of righteousness that they had just before giving in to that temptation, before reaching for that fruit, before taking it and eating of it, they were innocent, they were righteous, they were holy, they were blameless, they were pure. Now, as soon as they choose sin and self over righteousness and over their Creator, as soon as that happens, now they need to replace what they've lost. And they try to replace it with this feeble attempt. Fig leaves. That's all they had. And they try to run and hide to find protection. It's what we always try to do. We try to replace the righteousness that sin robs us of. And sin always robs us of righteousness. And we try to replace it. And as sin robs us of righteousness, that also results in a loss of dignity and a loss of meaning caused by falling from the glory of God. There's Romans 3.23 again. All have sinned and all fall from the glory of God. And that results in a loss of dignity, a loss of meaning, a loss of value. And then that also then results in a loss of fulfillment and satisfaction that comes from a right, strong relationship with God. 
when Adam and Eve had that intimate, close, personal, pure relationship with God that sin had not affected yet, there was absolute fulfillment in that. Absolute satisfaction. Until that moment where they decided they needed something more. Where they believed the lie of the enemy that said, God is not enough. And my friends, listen. Every time you're tempted to sin, whatever it may be, behind that is always a temptation to believe the lie that God is not enough. That's what's behind every sin. Every time you and I choose to sin in whatever way or form that is, we have made a choice in that moment that we needed something else to fulfill us other than God, that He was not enough. And that is always a lie. Because only God, only God can always give us all that we need. So first, our attempt is always to do that in our humanity, in our fallenness. It's to try to replace the righteousness that sin robs us of. That's what Adam and Eve did, and that's what continues to get passed down. It's not just that their sin gets passed down to us. It's what they did in response to their sin or what they tried to do in response to their sin. That also gets passed down. So that every human being tries to do the same thing. And then secondly, as they tried to hide their guilt and their shame, so we try to hide our guilt and our shame. We try to sweep it under the rug. We try to cover it up. We try to to self-medicate. Right? To try to instead of acknowledging the reason for our, our guilt and our shame and to try to deal with it the right way, we try to ignore it. We try to hide it. We try to pretend like it's not there. And we run from God instead of running toward Him. And that's what God was trying to do with Adam. Where are you, Adam? I know what's happened, but I want you to acknowledge what's happened so that I can restore you, so that I can bring you back to myself because you're not going to be able to do it. There's a separation now. There's a lacking now in your life, Adam, and you're not going to be able to meet it. You're not going to be able to meet your biggest need. You have a big problem. And now you have a a need to solve that problem, but it's not going to be found in yourself. It's not going to be found in hiding from me. Where are you? Come to me. That's what God was doing with Adam while Adam was hiding and trying to cover his guilt and shame and running from him instead of toward him. And we do the same thing. Thing, all of us. So we see both futile attempts here, and we see that in our own lives, and unfortunately, that's all through our history. All through history and all through the pages of Scripture, which detail human history, by the way. That's another reason that the Bible is so relevant, so important to know and to read, because it details and it captures all of human history so that we may learn from history and so that our future could look differently from our past. And so we see both of these futile attempts that we see right here with Adam and Eve at the start of our history, we see it repeated over and over all through the pages of Scripture. And especially in the New Testament, we see that the main attempt to meet the greatest need, which is restored righteousness which sin robbed us of and a right relationship with God that sin blocked 
That's our greatest need. You know, the title of the message today is Our Greatest Need. Well, that's it. Our greatest need is the answer or solution to our biggest problem of sin. Therefore, our greatest need is that restored righteousness and a right relationship with God that sin wrecked and ruined. Another word for that is justification. That's one of the Bible's best words that we're going to be unpacking in detail next week. And so, especially in the New Testament, we see that the main attempt on our part, on the people of God's part, to meet that greatest need is the law. The law. Living according to the law. Keeping the law. The law of Moses that that God did hand down to His people to guide and, and to protect, but also to show them how sinful they are. Which we'll see that in in just a few minutes. And yet the law, with all of its weight and all of its obligations and all of its pressure and all of its impossibility to keep, that is what people turn to, especially in the New Testament with the Jews and the Jewish leaders and, you know, and the religious authorities. It's all about the law, the law, the law. Well, how about the law? What, what, is that, what does that do for us? What does that show Hebrews 10, verses 1-4 through tells us this, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation, the NLT. Here's how the law works for you. Spoiler alert, doesn't work very well. Verse 1, Hebrews 10, verse 1. The old system under the law of Moses, so the old covenant, the, the Mosaic law, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. A shadow, a dim preview, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system, the old system, were repeated again and again, year after year. But they were never, I want to make sure you get that part. This is still in verse 1. But they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. I mean, that makes sense, right? That's logic. That's just firm, inescapable logic. If the old system and the law and the sacrifices and all of that were enough to make us right with God, then they would not have needed to keep happening, keep going, keep occurring. Year after year, all the time. It would have been over. But look, that's not what happened. Because that that couldn't happen. They weren't able to do that. Verse 3, but instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not, this is verse 4, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So here's this old system, the sacrificial system, the law, and all of its weight, all that's wrapped up in that. You've got to do all these sacrifices. You've got to mark your calendar on when every sacrifice is supposed to be. Every day, every week, every month, 
And then there's the ultimate every year sacrifice. There's all of that going on all the time. And you can't miss it at all. You've got to make sure you're faithful to it. Because if not, you break the law. You've got to keep the law. And then there's all these rules and all these regulations and all these obligations. And none of it did what needed to be done. None of it fixed the problem. None of it met the greatest need. And it wasn't just the sacrificial system that failed to meet the greatest need for God's people, no matter how faithfully they followed it. The other sacred cow for the Jews of Paul's day, especially for the religious leaders, was the special sign of circumcision. Man, they loved circumcision. They just kept pointing to that and kept elevating that. That's what sets us apart. You know, that's, that's what really shows we're special. That's what, that's what they really depended on to show that they were uniquely righteous. We are the Jews. We are the people of Israel. We are God's chosen people. We've been given the right of circumcision. That's what sets us apart from every other person on earth. That's what shows we're right with God. And that's an, an outward sign of our true holiness. It's all about circumcision. And that's the fallacy, because it is a fallacy. It was a fallacy. That's the fallacy that Paul is addressing in Romans 2, 25-29. So think about what we just read in Hebrews. The sacrificial system wasn't enough to meet the greatest need, that restored righteousness, that restored relationship with God. It didn't cut it. It was a picture. It was a shadow. It was an image pointing to the fact that there needed to be something else done. Now Paul is going to address the same lacking nature and reality of circumcision. Here's what he says. Verse 25, Romans 2. This is also from the NLT. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. Parentheses. Let's insert a parentheses. As in all the time. Perfectly. That's the parentheses that's important there. Circumcision has value only if you obey God's law all the time, perfectly. Hmm. Rutro. This is a problem, right? Because who could ever obey all of the law all the time perfectly, right? And that's the point. Look, he continues. But if you don't obey God's law all the time, which nobody ever did or could do, you, remember he's talking to the Jewish people here, Jewish Christians, Jewish authorities, Jewish leaders that have messed up and muddied the waters. Particularly, there's a whole group of people called the Judaizers that plagued Paul and plagued Paul's churches all throughout his ministry that said, yeah, Jesus is good, but you got to have the law. you got to have circumcision. And so he's making an argument against that. He's saying, no, 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 it's not, <laughs> it's not circumcision. If you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles, which every Jew, you know, would have been like, ooh, yeah, yeah, kubutui. If the Gentiles obey God's law, 
won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, and this is where he really throws the hammer down, in fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. Boom! That was a mic drop moment right there. He's saying you can't focus on circumcision because it's only going to have the value that is needed. It's only going to make you right with God if you keep all of God's law. That's the only way it's going to really matter. You can't do that, so you shouldn't depend on that. And by the way, these Gentiles over here that are uncircumcised that you look at with disdain, if they are genuinely seeking God and obeying His Word, then they are actually better off than you who don't pay attention to anything else about God's law or His Word because all you're focused on is circumcision. Then verse 28. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. In other words, it's all about the heart. It's not about the physical stuff. It's not about the externals. It's not about performance and going through the motions. It's not about some legalistic obligation. That's what he's driving home. So don't depend on the old sacrificial system. Don't depend on the act of circumcision. That's not what it's about. That's not going to meet the greatest need. That's what the author of Hebrews is stressing. That's what Paul is stressing. Now, what does this mean for us? Obviously, in our culture, in our time, circumcision doesn't really matter. just doesn't. I mean, it happens, right? But it's not a huge deal. It's not a religious priority for most people. Some, but not most. We're not under the Jewish law. We're not under the Mosaic covenant and, and all of those strict, rigid obligations. But, but the principle that the author of Hebrews was driving home, that Paul was driving home, the principle definitely still applies. Please understand that. The principle still applies. Because we, all of us, have plenty of our own sacred cows. We all have plenty of our legalistic systems that we so often rely on. As well as, we're really good at thinking we're really good. As in, we depend on our own moral high ground. We depend on our own ethics, you know, and our own being good, even if we don't depend on some of those other things. So this all really does apply, what, what Paul is stressing, what the author of Hebrews is stressing. And Paul would tell us the same thing he told his fellow Jews. None of that external stuff meets our greatest need. None of the stuff you and I try to do meets our greatest need. And here's why that's true. Romans 3.20, also from the NLT. 
For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law, any law, simply shows us how sinful we are. That's not just my opinion. That's the Word of God. That's Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The law can't make you right with God. It only points out the fact that apart from God Himself intervening, you will never be right with Him. Trying to keep the law, trying to keep any sort of moral standard, it's a never-ending cycle of defeat. Because just when we think we're finally good, all right, I've got this licked, I've got it down, just when we think we're finally good, the law points out another sin, another way we've dropped the ball and failed. And you know that. That's your experience. You try to be good. You try to obey God's law. You try to do more, check off the box, fill in the blank. And just when you think you're good, something else comes along, wham, and you're down in the dirt again. A few years ago, there was a really popular trend, and it was all over the social media platforms, YouTube, uh, Facebook. It was the shampoo prank. This is one of those kids don't try this at home moments, right? So the shampoo prank is usually it took place at, at a beach or at a pool, like those, you know, those showers where you go and you rinse off after you've been in the water, you've been in the sand or whatever. And there would be someone up above the shower or, or kind of off in the distance, and they'd wait until the person was under the water and, and lathering up, and they'd either be above them or behind them, and they would very discreetly squeeze shampoo on their head after, you know, they had already been rinsing. And so they'd be shampooing away, and they'd be rinsing. They'd think they were clean, and all of a sudden, wait, wait, there's all this shampoo. And so this would just go on and on and on. And finally, the people would get so frustrated. There's a few of the videos where the people would actually go, ah! And one guy fell down on the ground, and he started crying because he just couldn't get the shampoo clean. He was, he was losing his mind. That's a really good picture for how it is with trying to keep the law. It's impossible to clean ourselves and to meet our greatest need, which is to be clean, to have restored righteousness, to have restored relationship with God by keeping the law. It's impossible to keep all the law, any law, any version of the law, all the time. That's the extremely important point that Jesus' half-brother is making in James 2.10. Here's what he says in James 2.10. This is from the ESV. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. I'm going to read that again because it's that important. For whoever keeps the whole law. So you take all of the law, the whole thing, all the law of Moses and all of its you know, it, it's, it's tendrils and tentacles that affect everything else and all of the, uh, the, the sub-commands and everything, the whole enchilada. You take it. And he, he's saying, let, let's, say that somebody, let's say that somebody is able to keep that whole law one time. Like they finally achieved that, which, which that would never ever happen. But let's just say for argument's sake, they reached that peak. They finally, they kept the whole law. But then, after reaching that peak, then they fail in one tiny little area. 
then they are guilty of all of it. So it's absolutely impossible to clean ourselves up by keeping the law. So what is all of this, taking all of it together, what does all this teach us? One point. This is the, the one point of emphasis I want to make to you. I want, I want you to take away this more than anything else. Our greatest need can only be met by a great Savior. Our greatest need can only be met by a great Savior. John Newton, who actually wrote Amazing Grace, said this at the end of his life, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And that will always be true of us. We will always have a need to have that righteousness replaced that we can't meet ourselves. Nobody else can meet it for us. We need a great Savior to meet it. A right standing, a right relationship with God, which requires a restoration of the righteousness that we lost in the garden, that's our greatest need. And no amount of law-keeping, no amount of religious rituals, no amount of high morals or ethical excellence will ever be able to meet the need. You see... We all have a God-sized hole in our holiness. And only a divine Savior could provide what is needed to fill it. I want to wrap up by visiting that tragic scene in the garden once more. So Adam and Eve took the fruit, they ate it, they sinned. The glory they had covering them is gone. They're hiding from God. They're trying to meet their need themselves. Genesis 3.21, one of the most beautiful, powerful statements in that whole narrative, one of the most beautiful pictures pointing ahead to the reality of, of what meets our needs. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Where did he get skins from? From an animal. From an innocent animal that didn't sin. Wasn't an animal that took the fruit. Wasn't an animal that ate the forbidden fruit and broke God's commands. Adam and Eve sinned. And an animal died because of their sin. And an innocent animal skins covered them. What a stunning picture that is of sacrifice. And that's a stunning picture pointing to the reality contained in the Bible's best words, which, Lord willing, we're going to unpack for the second half of the series. We talked about our biggest problem last week. Today we've talked about our greatest need. So next up is the solution. The solution. And oh, oh, what a solution it is. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. And I thank You for how powerful and life-giving Your Word is. May Your Spirit take what we heard today, what we saw in Your Word, and please, Holy Spirit, apply that personally to every person's life that's here. We all have a need, a great need, 
to fix our big problem of sin. But it's not going to be found in ourselves, and it's not going to be found in the law. It's only found in what you did by sacrificing not just an animal, but sacrificing your own son for us. So as we really dig into that next week, please prepare our hearts and our minds for that. Help us to really understand the implications of what's found in the best words in your word. Thank you for all that you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.